welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I am your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, our guest lineup is slightly different than usual. Today, we will have two guests who will discuss EMDR therapy and big T and little t traumas. Today's guests are the authors of the book, Every Memory Deserves Respect. The brainchild of EMDR client, Michael Baldwin, who co-wrote with EMDR therapist, trainer, and consultant, Dr. Deborah Korn. Together, they will talk about how EMDR therapy addresses any size trauma and how it changed Michael's life. Please note that Dr. Korn is not Michael's therapist. Let's get started. Today, we sit down with EMDR therapist, Dr. Deborah Korn, who has spent the last three decades working with patients to overcome their trauma. Along with Dr. Korn, we are talking with a co-author of the book, Every Memory Deserves Respect, Michael Baldwin who credits EMDR with saving his life. This is the first time our podcast has interviewed an EMDR therapy client. Thank you, Deborah and Michael, for being here today on our Let's Talk EMDR podcast. We are so happy that you said yes. Thanks for having us, Kim. Thank you, Kim. So, Deborah, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an EMDR therapist? Sure. Well, as a newbie therapist, I quickly discovered uh, that nine times out of 10, no matter what issues brought people into treatment, there seemed to be a history of trauma just underneath the surface. You know, and I made a commitment early on to learn everything I could about treating trauma, but the field of trauma-informed treatment was still in its infancy at the time. We still had a lot to learn. Uh, I chose to work with combat veterans, rape survivors, families of murder victims, police officers, and men and women who had experienced significant childhood abuse and neglect as I tried desperately to get my head around how to treat trauma-related problems. And then in the summer of 1991, I traveled back to Denver, Colorado, where I had gone to graduate school to visit my graduate school mentor, Andy Sweet. And I was telling Andy how frustrated I was feeling with the limitations of the treatment models available to me when treating chronic trauma survivors. You know, teaching patients a a raft of cognitive or behavioral coping skills like positive self-talk or challenging distorted thinking and helping them to manage their symptoms seemed necessary but not sufficient. And more traditional talk therapy models lacked the focus and the clear path to healing that I was looking for. I was really discouraged by the idea put forth in many of these models that treatment needed to be long-term, sometimes very, very long-term to be effective. And most of my clients had difficulty tolerating uh, an approach called flooding, a precursor to what is known today as prolonged exposure. So my mentor, Andy, said to me, Debbie, listen up. There's this new therapy called EMDR, and it's something quite unique. It looks and sounds kind of strange, but I'm getting remarkable results with it. And he said, "You, you must go and get trained in it. And you have to run. Don't walk, run. So I ran and I got trained with Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR later that year. And at the time of my introductory EMDR training, I was the clinical director of an inpatient psychiatric unit specializing in the treatment of women recovering from both acute and chronic trauma. And I was treating women struggling with severe suicidal ideation and self-injury, eating disorders, addictions. Some of them had made very serious suicide attempts. And I used EMDR every single day, starting the day after I completed my basic training on this inpatient unit. And 
from the get-go, I was absolutely blown away by the results I saw. Uh, significant decreases in PTSD and other trauma-related symptoms, depression, anxiety, phobias, self-injury, even suicidality. And I watched as women on my unit moved from feeling hopeless to feeling hopeful. And through their EMDR work, I watched them shift from feeling powerless and not good enough to feeling powerful and more than worthy. And then I had the honor of becoming a faculty member at the EMDR Institute, Dr. Shapiro's Training Institute in 1993. And I started teaching and consulting all over the world about applying EMDR with complex PTSD and dissociative disorders. Uh, and I, I guess the rest is history. But the the bottom line, though, was that I was drawn to EMDR and have stayed with EMDR because it was and is effective, efficient, and well-tolerated, tolerable for my patients. And I love that it attended to emotions, the body, and people's belief systems, to what was locked or frozen in people's nervous systems, and that it seemed to stimulate people's innate healing capacities or resources. It was dependable and precise and, you know, I love that people didn't have to recount the details of their traumatic experiences over and over again. And I quickly discovered that I could use EMDR with many different problems, not just PTSD for which it was originally developed. No matter what symptoms people presented with, anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, problems with anger, we could trace the origin of these symptoms back to earlier traumatic or adverse experiences in their life and we could get to work. So over the years, even though I've trained in many different trauma-informed therapies, EMDR remains my first language, my primary modality. And in my experience, it works better and faster than other trauma-focused approaches. And as a total bonus, I find the work to be deeply intimate, meaningful, and rewarding. It's a privilege, truly, to accompany people on their healing journeys. I've interviewed some EMDR therapists since we started this podcast in June. And what I always say to them somewhere along the podcast is thank you for the work that you do and thank the heavens above that there are people out there like you and our colleagues who do this kind of work mm. to help mm. mankind basically and help humans live their life that they want. So thank you, Deb, for doing mm. this Of course, we of really course. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so, truly a privilege. It's truly a privilege. Could you define trauma for us and then give us a couple of examples of big T and little t traumas? Because I think that's where people think, oh, well, I haven't had anything traumatic happen in my life. Sure. Trauma is a part of life, right? 70% of adults, 70, 75% of adults have experienced at least one significant trauma across their lifetime. We define trauma very broadly in our book. We define it as any experience that feels overwhelming triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. Trauma is both objective and subjective. It's both the event and the experience of that event. So no two people are going to experience the same event in the same way. What might be traumatic for one person is not going to be traumatic for the other person and vice versa. So it's not just what happened to you, but also what happens within you, inside of you. What we know is that the greater the number of traumas, the greater the psychological, physical toll. Trauma is cumulative and it's developmentally bound. And what I mean by that is that younger folks, children and adolescents are more vulnerable to the effects of trauma than adults, 
right? They have fewer skills, less capacity for coping with overwhelming experiences. And trauma involves both omission and commission. By commission, we're referring to the things that happen to you, right? The more obvious traumas, assault, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, a car accident, a traumatic loss. When we talk about omission, we're referring to situations where things were supposed to happen but didn't, situations where someone was not properly protected or listened to, cared for, or valued. So here we're talking about experiences of neglect, deprivation, abandonment, alienation, discrimination. We often talk about big T traumas and little t traumas, as you said. Big T traumas are the events that most anyone would consider traumatic, right? Shock traumas, where the person perceives a potential threat to their survival or the survival of loved ones. So examples of big T traumas, um, childhood sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, rape, or physical assault, the traumatic death or murder of a loved one, combat-related trauma, devastation related to an environmental disaster, witnessing violence, traumatic medical procedures or life-threatening illnesses. Little t trauma are those experiences that people might not necessarily recognize as traumatic or events that might not necessarily meet the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual Criteria for so-called trauma. So here we're talking about experiences of criticism, covert bullying, experiences of betrayal, experiences involving humiliation or failure or profound aloneness, exposure to subtle microaggressions, as well as blatant discrimination or hostility related to race or ethnicity, gender, uh, sexual orientation or appearance. And then examples of little traumas in adulthood uh, might be a divorce, losing a job, a difficult move, the discovery of a partner's affair. But again, these might be big T traumas for some people. They might be little T traumas for other people, but the effects can be devastating, whatever the case. In childhood, little T traumas, feeling ignored or abandoned or unprotected in the face of scary things, feeling different, unable to measure up or powerless to control the craziness or the chaos in your family. Michael, can you talk to us a little bit about how your book, Every Memory Deserves Respect, came about? Just a little bit about my background. I had struggled with as an adult with symptoms, none of which I ever related back to childhood trauma because I wasn't aware of trauma in the first place. So I had gone through um, seven different therapists over about 22 years until I met Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita. And for your listeners' benefit, Debbie was not my therapist. Debbie's my co-op. Dr. Magnavita was my therapist. And um, as I started to learn about trauma and EMDR for the first time when I walked into his office, I had never heard of none of the therapists I'd ever dealt with ever talked about or, or um, even mentioned the word trauma ever, not one time. And none of them were exposed to or fluent in EMDR therapy at all. So as I started over maybe the first six months to learn about those two concepts, trauma and EMDR, as a visual thinker, because when I was a boy, I was so short-circuited because of my own developmental issues, I couldn't read, and I, I was just very much a, um, a right-brained visual thinker and processor. So as I understood concepts like, for example, the concept of trauma being two 
big, for lack of a better word, to be processed like normal daily events gets locked in your nervous system. And it stays there perfectly preserved unless and until you have the benefit of processing that traumatic memory with the help of the EMDR therapist. So that's a concept, a fundamental concept about trauma. So visually um, in the book, there's an, what I like to refer to as an anchor visual for anybody, any culture at work, no matter what language or culture or country you're in, of a piece of a man holding a piece of amber with a little flower in it that happens to be 35 million years old that's perfectly preserved in that amber. So that's an anchor visual for people to, to think about how trauma is perfectly preserved and locked in your central nervous system. That's where it stays. And these images with little text opposite are what we now refer to as billboards. So I had about six of these. I showed them to Dr. Magnavita and he said, Michael, you know, this could be a book. And all you have to do is find an EMDR therapist who's willing to write a book with you who will never have met you and know, know you from Adam. <laughs> and looking back, I said, w- what on earth was I thinking? How on earth did I ever imagine I could, I could pull this off? And I believe me, uh, I reached out to everyone. Debbie was introduced to me by Dr. Magnavita. Debbie was the one who stuck with me. Debbie, who won, was the one who over time was able to decide that she wanted to to do it and was also able to commit to the time for because her schedule is so completely overbooked with patients and a son and a husband and a million other things that she's involved with. So I took the same six sort of billboards to a publisher working publishing and I had no table of contents. I had no sample chapter. I had no co-author. I only had this idea. And from the very first meeting, they said we're interested. That's fantastic. So you touched on this a little bit. So can you uh, please share your trauma history as you feel comfortable? Sure. My trauma history, the foundation, I think, was, as Debbie was talking about, was a an omission uh, foundation where severe neglect and deprivation, which started at preverbal stages, but also involved abuse. So there was sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. And as I moved into adulthood, symptoms for me were anxiety and depression and self-doubt and a a core conviction that um, I was basically worthless. And um, I suffered from two nightmares that plagued me for over 30 years, never ever diminished in terms of their intensity and the same exact nightmares just replaying, replaying, replaying. Also dealing with phobias, even though I didn't know what a phobia was. I didn't know these were phobias um, having to do with um, using public restrooms. um, And the most extreme was um, any suggestion of any kind of intimacy with a woman would be completely panic inducing. And the, the weird thing about my history is I just thought this was the way I was. I thought this is just my, my disposition in life. I had no idea. And as I said before, never did I connect my adult symptoms back to developmental childhood trauma issues because I had no idea I was a survivor in the first place, had no concept of trauma in the first place. So I never was able to make that connection until I started working with Dr. Magdavita. Yeah, the other thing I should mention, and using, I guess, Debbie used this clinical reference all the time, attachment rupture. So unable to form that fundamental connection with in my case, my two parents, either one of them. So I had, I had no connection, no attachment, no one to turn to. And as Debbie referred to either, things that should have been ha- happening, support, mirroring, celebration, none of that took place. So I was basically, you know, on my own. What a shame that some people should not have children. 
you know, mm-hmm. it's, and unfortunately you don't, you don't have any control over that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Child, you know. Michael, you might want to share an example of when you talk about omission or neglect, like an example of. Yeah. So they're one about, I'll give you an example. So, so probably um, age two put in the backyard in Denver, Colorado and barefoot in a diaper and just left there alone somehow I would manage to find my way outside of the backyard, down the back alleyway, and down into the intersection of where we lived in Denver. And someone would bring me home to the front door saying, you know, we've we found your son wandering around. And the, the grotesque thing about these these and many other stories is that our mother used to talk and sort of laugh about them. You know, this funny story about Michael would just wander around and he'd wander into the intersection. So there was that. And also, um, I remember Dr. Maggie, I showed him a picture about the same time frame of me. And he said, never forget it. He said, oh, my. He said, you look like you have the blank stare of a Syrian refugee whose entire family has been killed and you're just wandering around in the rubble. Just completely blank. So tragic. Well, I'm I'm very glad that you found help and support with your therapist and found uh, MDR to help you process all of that, that trauma. So I'm grateful for that. So let's talk a little bit more about your your career. Just briefly, uh, you were a high powered ad exec at Oldie and Mather in New York City. Before that, you ran Next for Steve Jobs. How were you able to achieve so much success while hiding your emotional pain and debilitating phobias? So pretty early on, and I'm not sure exactly, Debbie knows what about that. When your core belief and conviction is that you are worthless, um, that's not something you can, I mean, sustain, I guess, as an existential reality. So I switched to a strategy. In my case, it was a grandiosity strategy. So my defense against that core belief was to become a strat- a, a status and achievement junkie. I, I, I like to say I, I wasn't living, I was just compelled. So I was goal set, goal achieve, goal set, goal achieve, goal set, goal achieve. It's a non-thinking kind of existence. So for example, I, I got into advertising, which of course makes sense because look at it, it's all about, you know, the, the life of an advertising executive, the sort of glamorous, you know, globe-trotting expense account, um, you know, kind of lifestyle, which was, you know, seemed to fit my grandiosity strategy. And it was one successive thing after. So getting myself into medical school and then not going, getting a, my advertising job after I got into medical school in 13 days, which is like, you know, crazy. Running the Boston Marathon, but never walking one step. Getting my surname registered as a domain name, I think in the first time in the history of the internet, you know, like this in, back in 1994, when I could have had anything. It was just a series of, and then, and uh, I think in answer to your question, how, how I was able to hide the reality, I wasn't aware of the reality. I was completely unaware of my own trauma. And I, I was so involved in the, the strategy to cover it up and you know pave over it. I wasn't aware of it at all. When I got to the point where I walked into Dr. Magdavita's office, on the other hand, I was, I was at an, an all-time low. I mean, I think he took one look at me and said, this person is in real, real distress. So Deb, many people are familiar with talk therapy and CBT therapy. How is EMDR different? You touched on it a little bit earlier, but can you elaborate a little Mm -hmm. bit more? Yeah, sure. You know, my, my sense is that the term talk therapy means different things to different people and that there are in fact many different types of therapy, including various forms of CBT that fall under the very large 
talk therapy umbrella. Uh, that said, just as the name implies, talking is typically at the core of traditional talk therapy. It involves a top-down process where the starting point is the client's narrative. In talk therapy, therapists invite clients to put words on their experiences and to reflect on those experiences, directing attention to their emotions, their distorted thinking and beliefs with the ultimate goal of increased insight, a better understanding of oneself and one's life, uh, more adaptive thinking, and a more effective approach to coping. As insight increases, the hope is that one's self-narrative and relationship to past experiences will also change. The therapy may focus on problem solving or learning new skills to manage symptoms uh, or challenges in life as well. However, verbal exploration and learning coping skills, even with a deeply compassionate and supportive therapist, are often not enough to quell the involuntary, involuntary biologically driven physiological responses of the body and brain associated with unprocessed trauma locked in the nervous system. Now, EMDR differs from more traditional talk therapy in that it is memory focused from the get-go and oriented to all aspects of experience, emotions, sensations and impulses, thoughts and beliefs, imagery, other sensory input like sounds or smells. The primary emphasis is not on words or interpretation or insight. Instead, it's on processing the traumatic memories that are responsible for symptoms and difficulties. EMDR tends to be much less cognitive and much more oriented to tracking affective, emotional, and somatic body-based shifts over the course of processing. Personally, I really think of EMDR as primarily a bottom-up body-focused psychotherapy. Changes in thinking are a byproduct of focusing on and processing emotion and somatic experience. And EMDR can be done with very few words. It's not even necessary for clients to describe a traumatic experience or what is coming up as they bring their attention to it. Now, there is a type of therapy known as trauma-focused CBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, that does specifically attend to traumatic memories like EMDR. However, this approach is quite different than EMDR in both theory and practice. With trauma-focused CBT, clients describe their traumatic experience in great detail in the treatment session and then are required to listen to an audio tape of the session for at least an hour every day, exposing themselves to their trauma script over and over again until there's a reduction in their distress, until that distress gets extinguished. They are also required to do in vivo exposure homework in which they engage in avoided activities related to their trauma. So for example, if they had a car accident, they would be expected to, to come closer and closer to having contact with driving and eventually driving. Now, EMDR does not involve detailed descriptions of traumatic events. It does not involve extended exposure, and it doesn't involve homework. All processing of traumatic material is done in session with the therapist present to help co-regulate and intervene as needed. 
exposure to traumatic material is is brief, is imaginal, and it's intermittent. It's not prolonged. It's not repeated. Clients are not required to repeatedly tell, write, or listen to their trauma narrative within or outside of session. And they're simply asked to self-monitor and to record observations between sessions. And of course, (laughs) last but not least, EMDR involves the use of bilateral stimulation, eye movements, taps, tones, the butterfly hug, a unique and powerful treatment component component that is not found in these other therapies. At this point in time, in 2022, I think there's been over 30 studies substantiating the powerful effects of eye movements. And so we have significant empirical support for this component of our treatment. Thank you. That's a great explanation for our listeners. Deb, can you tell us in the simplest sense, can you explain how memories get frozen or locked in the nervous system? Yes, Michael Michael used this terminology earlier, frozen or locked in the nervous system. On a day-to-day basis, for the most part, we process experiences without difficulty. For example, we go to a party, we see our friends, we eat good food, or at least we used to do this before COVID. <laughs> we make conversation. Maybe we dance, we have fun. This is a normal everyday experience, right? Normal everyday circumstances. We come home from the party. We perhaps talk to our partner, our spouse about the party. We reflect on who we talk to. Maybe we go to sleep that night. We have a dream about the party. Maybe we write in our journal about the party. But basically, the experience gets processed and put up up on the shelf to rest, right? The past gets moved in the past, into the past. However, under traumatic circumstances, something very different seems to happen. Traumatic memories seem to somehow get frozen or locked in the brain, in the nervous system, with all of the components of the original adverse experience, the images, the feelings, the sensations, the thoughts associated with that original traumatic event. And the brain's information processing system is unable to digest the experience. And other information held elsewhere in memory doesn't get connected in, doesn't get integrated to help a person make sense of the event. It doesn't get metab- the event doesn't get metabolized or resolved. And then it gets stored in this unprocessed form. Then along comes the trigger, an experience that's somehow reminiscent of the original traumatic event. Days later, weeks later, uh, maybe even years later, decades later for some people. When you get triggered, that traumatic memory gets activated. The past becomes the present. People lose their adult present-day grounding and perspective. Suddenly, you're feeling like you are five years old again, growing up in a chaotic alcoholic family, feeling scared and powerless. Suddenly you're feeling frozen and unable to think clearly or make decisions. Sometimes all of the components of the memory get activated, sometimes simultaneously. And the result is full-blown PTSD, intrusive symptoms like nightmares or flashbacks, body memories that involve pain or panic or overwhelming anxiety, avoidance of people, places, and things, sleeplessness, and startle responses. Sometimes 
simply a single component of that frozen memory gets activated. A thought like, I'm not good enough, or a feeling like profound grief. And that may look much more like depression. And then, of course, sometimes when the distress associated with these activated memories becomes unbearable, people turn to drinking, drugs, self-injury, or other behaviors to soothe themselves, to avoid, or to numb out. Often they don't even know why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And Michael just made mention of that in response to one of your questions. They don't, people don't connect their current state to past traumatic experiences. They just know that it's unbearable. And um, Michael does talk a lot about this in our book. It's a great explanation. Thank you. Michael, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to ask uh, a little bit of a different question. Uh, You say that after 22 years of other therapies, you were treading water. Why were traditional talk therapy, CPT, and others only of marginal help? I think because they don't have the facility to target back to the original source of the traumatic memory of the trauma itself. For me, and I want to make sure I don't try to suggest a blanket statement. For me, those therapies tended to be intellectual exercises um, or, you know, talk talk therapy is 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 by definition a, a talking kind of a thing. Whereas from the very first time I met with Dr. Meg DeVita, it felt like we were, well, I shouldn't say it felt like, for me, experientially, I was connecting directly back to the trauma itself, experiencing it through my body, through my emotions, in the most visceral and authentic and complete way possible. And that had never happened before. But not only that, the other gigantic dividend for me for EMDR was when you complete this or as you complete the work you get a what we refer to in the book as a site map. So you can see kind of bird's eye view. That was my situation. That was the, my father's role. That was my mother's role. This is the role my siblings played. And this is where, where my grandmother came in. And you, you have a kind of a site map developmentally of how things happened, how they unfolded, and why things, you know, why you sort of lean one way versus the other. And, 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 and I, I think the bottom line, at least in my family was because it was dysfunctional crucible we were all in. It was survival of the fittest, you know, every man for himself. So myself, and my three siblings had to figure out how we were going to survive until I guess we became adults, you know? Um, and, you know, we all had different, my, my brother and I had different approaches. My two sisters have different approaches, but in answer to your question, it's, and I use this example. Um, I've used it before where, it's like you're grabbing right onto that third rail where where you're you're you are reimagining re not reliving but putting yourself back in touch with that original traumatic memory the original traumatic experience and as Debbie said earlier all the thoughts and beliefs and emotions and somatic there is so much somatic component to mark with Dr. Magdavita, where, for example, I mean, I remember being having severe cramps in his in his hearing, his office. Like, why, you know, going back to being preverbal in a crib where no one's feeding me, no one's coming to pay any attention to me, wow. you know, and forever. And I just, as he said, you go to a point where there's the crying, and then there's the collapse, where you basically you're it's hopeless, you've given up. 
So the somatic part, as Debbie was referring to earlier, that's what, that's also a huge, huge part of it. Thank you. How has your life changed after EMDR therapy? Oh, wow. Um, I would say in many, many, many small ways and in many gigantic ways, I would say, here's the broad stroke. My, for lack of a better way of referring to it, my operating system leading up to my work with Dr. Magdavita was fraught with anxiety and depression and fear and dread. Dread was a big part of it. Um, Uncertainty, feeling like the smallest criticism would send me over the edge into a into like this this waterfall of I'm no good I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to fail I'm going to run out of money I'm going to end up the guy outside of the you know on the in the snow in New York you know with a blanket over me penniless that was my day to day existence I got to trade that in for a different operating system with Dr Magduda where I just wake up and I just am and all those things that I used to live with on a daily basis gone the nightmares that plagued me for over 30 years gone the phobias that i live with and, and i just assumed that way it was gone but i'll give you one huge example of something i never would have expected growing up and uh, you know i was bullied at home i was a bully at school my brother was my bully at home and he was a particularly diabolical physical bully and 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 and, and psychological it was he was horrible and i've never had a relationship with him my whole life never thought i ever would and when the book came out, Dr. Magnita said I had to let him know the book was coming out because, you know, there could be legal issues, whatever. And it was remarkable. He said, I don't care. You can say whatever you want about me in the book. If it, I mean, I'm just delighted if it means that we finally maybe have a chance to have a relationship as brothers. He had asked me in our very first call if Debbie could recommend an EMDR therapist for him. This is about a year and a half ago. So he started his own EMDR journey. And... This last year, we've had a call every single Friday, haven't missed, maybe maybe one we've missed without fail. And we had our very first week together as brothers. We went up to Vermont. The Monday of the week we spent together was his 70th birthday. So this is how long it took. This is how long we waited. And I can tell you to this day, he's the most intimate relationship that I have in my life. I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't imagine him not in my life. And I can't imagine anything more unexpected we just spent a, a week on a trip with his two daughters the, the, and uh had the most fantastic trip and it's just it's just amazing that that something i live without my whole life but secretly yearned for yeah. i'm now enjoying to to an uh, to incredible extent yeah that's beautiful that's a beautiful i mean it's it's horrible that you had to go through all of that trauma but it's beautiful that your journey has now impacted his journey and it's basically sort of you're on your way to healing your relationship with this, basically your childhood tormentor who was your Absolutely. So what, what a wonderful, wonderful healing journey. That's just beautiful. I'm so happy for you both. Yeah. Thank you. I have a couple of questions that aren't on the the list. Uh, Deb, if you were not an EMDR therapist, what would you be? (laughs) I, in my fantasy life, I would be a cruise director, or like Julie uh, from the Love Boat, I or exactly when I watch that show. Exactly, or I would be an events planner. I love bringing people together. I love um, inspiring people to let go and have fun and uh, and do things they've never done before. So I think. I think that would be my pursuit. 
That, that's great. I have worked with some amazing meeting and event planners, and they are, <laughs> they are truly uh, a unique breed of people <laughs> who know how to wrangle <laughs> all of these things happening, and they just put it together. And you know, a good meeting planner, you just you don't even know what's happening. You just go and experience the event, mm-hmm. either whether you're a staff member or an attendee. And so mm-hmm. that's a great. That's there's no wrong answer with that, but that's a great, <laughs> great answer. Michael, what about you? If you hadn't been, if you hadn't picked something like advertising or business, what would you have done? So, so I would have started back in college. I would have been a some kind of creative arts, you know, or film studies major. What I was doing, at, I mean, I was a chemistry major because I thought being a doctor was the highest status thing I could shoot for. So, you know, back to the whole grandiosity thing, the status achievement, but. De- uh, definitely involved with films, filmmaking, creativity, twenty four seven ideation. Anything um, having to do with ideation and creativity, I'd want to be completely immersed in. Nice, that's nice. So, do either one of you have anything else you'd like to add, Debbie? I'll ask you first. Mm. Well, I think I would want to give a shout out to anyone who's listening to the podcast who is struggling. And I want them to know that they don't have to figure it out by themselves. They don't have to make sense out of it before they show up at a therapist's door, right? A lot of people feel like they somehow need to be able to put words (laughs) on their experience. They need to be able to connect the dots to be able to tell their story when they show up for therapy. And I just want people to know that they they can come as they are. They can show up with their whole entire hot mess and we will help. We will help them to begin to put the pieces together, to connect the dots, to find out what's at the root of their difficulties. And we will shepherd the process. We will accompany them and be there with them every step of the way. They don't have to figure it out by themselves. And they certainly don't have to figure it out before they come for therapy. I think Michael didn't really have all the pieces of his story. He wasn't able to connect all of the dots until the very final days of his therapy. Um, You know, in some of his final sessions, some memories were identified, were uncovered that explained some of the symptoms and difficulties he was having in his adulthood. So it really is a process. And um, I just want to encourage people to come as they are. Thank you. Michael, what about you? Any final thoughts? So I'm going to build on that thought. And I say when, when I was in my 20s, EMDR had not been discovered. It's, you know, as Debbie mentioned, it's now 30 years on with all kinds of evidence-based um, uh, proof of the effectiveness and efficiency of, of, of EMDR therapy as a trauma-based therapy. So my message to your listeners would be, if you are struggling, husband, spouse, girlfriend, neighbor, colleague, daughter, son, don't wait. Life is so short. And when you know that this this therapy offers you the chance to, as I like to refer to as, you know, get your head above water and see things clearly, I would just encourage people to go to our website and on the very first homepage, there's a box that says find a therapist and you go to the embrya.org site. It's everymemorydeservedrespect.com. But just final message is if, if, if you're struggling in any way or know someone who you care about who is, don't wait. Thank you. It's a great way to end it. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guests, Michael Baldwin and Dr. Deborah Korn. 
visit www.emdria.org for more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist directory with more than 13,000 therapists available. Our award-winning blog, Focal Point, offers information on EMDR and is an open resource. Thank you for listening.